Our text today is Luke chapter 17, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Then Jesus said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts today. Help me to be a capable and articulate messenger of your word. Fill me with your spirit that I might speak these things clearly and then fill us all with your spirit so that we might receive them and live by them. So today, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. For just a few moments, consider, if you will, the, uh, the pencil. It's something you don't think about a lot. It's certainly the most low-tech, rudimentary, simple, everyday product, uh, object that you, that you could probably name, just a pencil. Uh, everybody's owned several, and they're so ubiquitous. It's like they're, it's, if you lose your pencil, it's not like you freak out. There's more pencils, right? Pencils are pretty, pretty common. And yet, there's not one person on the face of the entire world that can make a pencil all by themselves. Nobody. I, I can say that boldly. I can say that confidently. None of you can make a pencil from scratch. Um, there's a fascinating little essay on, on the internet. It's old. I think it's 60s or 70s. Uh, isn't that funny to say it's old? I guess if some of us are from the 60s or 70s, that makes us old, so I better watch it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an essay by Leonard Reed, R-E-A-D. It's I Pencil, and some of your children might enjoy looking this essay up and, and reading it. I just want to summarize uh, this. I've, I've updated some of the numbers, but there are 2 billion pencils produced in this country each year. And yet, as I said, no one on their own could make just one. Just think of all the human labor that goes into making a pencil. The wood typically comes from cedar trees in Oregon and California. So there's an entire logging industry that goes into cutting down trees, processing the lumber, shipping it to the sawmill where it's kiln dried, it is cut, and then they make uh, your, your pencil, your wooden pencil is a sandwich, right? So it's two pieces of wood glued together, and in the center of that is the lead, though it's not actually made of lead. The lead in a pencil is graphite. Where does graphite come from? Graphite is mined uh, predominantly in Sri Lanka. So there are graphite mines in Sri Lanka, and that material is uh, mined and processed and put on ships and sent to the United States. So there are ship captains and there are longshoremen both loading and unloading the graphite uh, from, from the ships. Uh, so then 
the, uh, the graphite, once it gets here, it's mixed with clay from the Mississippi River. It's treated with a hot mixture, which includes special wax from Mexico and natural fats from the food industry, just so you get that right, that right uh, uh, shade of, of pencil on your, on your page when you, when you use it. The pencil itself gets six coats of lacquer which is made from castor beans. And those come from the Middle East and Africa, which all require growing and harvesting the castor beans and then the whole industry of turning that into lacquer. The little bit of metal that holds your eraser on, do you know that has a name? I bet you, does anybody know the name of that? Oh, who said that? You did, okay, well you get the gold star because I didn't know the name of this, but it's the ferrule, it has a name. Uh, It's incredible. Where would we be without the ferrule? It holds our eraser on, and our, our eraser would fall off without it. The ferrule is made out of, out of brass, which is, uh, again, it's copper and zinc combined. So there's a mining industry to, to mine copper and zinc, and then uh, an industry to turn that into brass. And then your, your rubber eraser, well, it has rubber in it, which could either come from a plant, rubber could be plant-based latex, or it could come from a, from a chemist. And, and the erasing agent in the eraser is, uh, it comes from soy-based oils mixed with sulfur chloride. So you see why we say no one person can make a pencil from scratch. It takes a global economy to make a pencil. And it takes a logging industry agriculture, mining, chemistry, trucks, trains, ships, and all the people to drive those things and the fuel to to propel all of those vehicles and a manufacturing process which requires electricity to make something as plain and as simple and as low-tech as a pencil. And if it takes this interconnected, interdependent network of people to make a pencil What does it take to make a kingdom? What does it take to make a church? What does it take to bring together a people of God? One of the most destructive lies that we have imbibed as a people in this society, one of the most destructive lies is the sufficiency and the independence of the individual. We we hear this expressed in so many different ways. One of the most common ways we joke um, in, in our house we, we make fun of lingo and we say, you do you. And we usually say that when you're doing something really stupid, right? Well, you, you do you, right? Obviously, you're doing something ridiculous. But you be yourself. You do your own thing. You be true to yourself. And you don't need anybody's involvement or approval or authority to do what you want to do in your life. And this is, this is the sentiment. This is just in the air. This is in the water we drink, this independence and the self-sufficiency of the individual. And the church is not immune from this. This same sentiment is, has been imported into the church, both in this very me and Jesus kind of theology that, that says we don't need uh, 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 the church. We don't need the sacraments. We don't even really need the word. You can, you can commune with God in the woods or in the, you know, uh, on the lake or wherever, or the golf course, wherever you happen to be. This, this, this isolationism also gets imported through a twisted doctrine of the family that, that 
pronounces over and over and over in so many different ways, the family is a self-reliant, self-sufficient unit, that the, the family has all it needs to succeed. Whether or not the church is part of the equation or not doesn't, doesn't matter. The, the family can, can exist and thrive uh, without friends, without community. This, this doctrine, this falsehood has been so devastating as families fall apart one right after another, discovering sadly that while they thought they were huddling together and protecting their families from sin as they raise the drawbridge and, and close ranks and circle the wagons, they think they're protecting their children from outside sin. And what they're really doing is giving their families a toxic overdose of their own sin. <laughs> That's come here so I can just, just hit you with a, a thousand units of my own sin. And, and then this, this is not diluted and, and it's not uh, uh, sharpened by other, other people. It's not dulled uh, by, by other people uh, as um, the case may be. So God has not created us to live in isolation. God has not created us to live in fear or in suspicion of one another, but he has created us to live in community, dependent on one another, interconnected, interdependent. So if God has placed us in community together with a purpose, with a design, and I withdraw from you, I am selfishly withholding from you things that you need from your, for your sanctification, things that you need for your growth in Christ. I, I will be withdrawing the things God has has prescribed for you. And, and if you withdraw from me, you are taking away what I need to grow, what God has given me uh, for, for, for my sanctification. And you may say, well, when, when, we, when we come together, there's sparks and there's friction and there's stuff and there's stumbling and there's, there's trouble. And Jesus freely admits at the beginning of Luke 17, he says, of course, that will happen. He, he says, it is impossible that no offenses should come. That's, what, that's from the mouth of the Savior. It is impossible that no offenses should come. Okay, we got it. So that's, that's, we just go into it knowing that offenses are going to come. And yet we need the process of working through offenses. We require that. In fact, we all need each other more than we can even realize. If, if you're one of those graphite miners in Sri Lanka, you may not even be aware that there are American school children using the product of your labors, but you're dependent upon them. If American school children stop buying pencils and all of a sudden they find like, you know, Apple comes out with a laser pen or something and, and it burns holes in the paper and now we don't need pencils anymore. Then the guy in Sri Lanka, he loses his job and he loses his, 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 uh, his means of making a living mining graphite. You see, though, though we can't always see and fully appreciate the ways that we're interconnected and interdependent, um, we are still yet at the same time connected by the Holy Spirit in ways we can't fully appreciate. We're dependent upon each other. So... When Jesus opens this discourse and he's talking about our interconnected life together as his disciples, it's based on the shared assumption that we're actually in each other's lives, that we're involved with each other and sharing life together. Last week we saw Jesus warning the stewards of the new age and, and 
showing them how the stewards of the old age had wasted the gifts that, that they had been given by God. The stewards the, of the old age, the Pharisees, the rulers of the synagogues, they had wasted the riches that God had entrusted to them. And so Jesus is uh, taking to task the stewards of the new age, saying, you don't be like the old bosses. <laughs> you know, the new bosses, you don't act like the, you don't act like the old ones. Don't be wasteful. Don't manipulate people. Don't abuse the good gifts of God. Now, he continues right along the same track, telling his disciples how, I don't want you acting like the rulers of the old world who stiff arm the outsider. Anybody who makes them feel uncomfortable, anybody who makes them feel unpleasant, they, they turn up their noses at the people they are sent to save. So Jesus opens, like I said, he says, offenses are gonna come, trouble is gonna happen. That's the way the world is now. Until my final victory over the enemy, there's gonna be offenses. There's no way of avoiding offense completely. But Jesus also says, woe to the one who intentionally inflicts offense on another in such a way that keeps them from entering the kingdom. Jesus says it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea than it would be for you to offend one of these little ones and receive the judgment that you deserve for that. You know what a millstone is? It's a huge uh, round rock with a hole in the middle uh, on, on which um, a, you know, the, the uh, wheel would turn and it would grind the wheat. A huge, enormous thing to have that tied around your neck as a collar and to be thrown into the sea. You, you'd rather that happen than to get the judgment for, uh, that you deserve for offending one of the least of these. So what Jesus is aiming at is that there's, there's this way to openly ridicule and to mock and to insult people so that they don't feel safe, so that they don't feel like they have a place, so that they don't feel like they belong, and the Pharisees were good at that. There's also this way that, that we can behave that, that freezes people out by, by self-righteousness and by distance, by just frostiness. What, what Jesus' words teach us is that there are behaviors, both active and passive, that keep people from the kingdom. Our sins and behaviors have real effects on other people. My sin can in real ways hurt you and your sins in fact can hurt me. Our sins can bring shame to the name of Jesus and the church and we can by our behavior direct people away from Jesus rather than to him. As, as Paul told the Jews and Romans, he said, the, the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Could you imagine that being said about you? That's absolutely horrifying. The, the name of the Lord, God's name is blasphemed among, among the Gentiles because of you. That's terrifying. Jesus says, don't offend. And then adding to that, he says, when offenses come, always seek restoration. Jesus says this, and we read it a minute ago. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Let me just unpack that word by word, very, very quickly. He says, if your brother sins against you. We're assuming here that we have a mutual understanding, a shared vocabulary of forgiveness and repentance and restoration. We, we, we assume that um, we, we have an understanding and a common goal. So this is, this is about sins among brothers. If your brother sins against you, and then let's underscore the word sin, if he sins against you, the things that we're more likely 
to be offended over, the things that we're more likely to have friction about, are not uh, out-and-out sins, but they're differences of opinion. They're, um, <laughs> they're uh, uh, maybe oversights or miscommunications, mistakes, but, but not sins. And, but, but sins are more difficult to approach for some reason. If I'm going to flip out and lose my mind, it's usually over some accident, some oversight, some m- m- misspoken word. But, but sin, that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. And we are not required to argue every difference of opinion until we all turn blue and fall out of exhaustion. But if there's sin that we can point to, if you can say, you sinned against me, that's what we correct in the expectation of repentance. Jesus also says, if he repents, forgive him. How many times do I have to do that? Jesus responds, if he sins seven times a day and repents seven times, understand that we have to have both sides of the coin. If he sins and repents seven times a day, you shall forgive him. And so Jesus says, don't offend and always seek restoration. We get that backwards. We push people away and then we cultivate bitterness because we're more like the Pharisees and we're less like Jesus. Jesus encourages and exhorts us in these words to pay attention to each other, to to know that we need one another. Watch out for each other's souls. You You don't get a free pass. You don't get to get out of this and keep your hands clean by saying, I'm not involved. I'm not on my, I'm on my own. I don't need anybody. And I don't really require anything but me and my family. You deprive yourself of the sanctification and the mutual edification that Jesus intends for you to gain from life in and with the body. Now, now when Jesus instructed his disciples like this, they thought they were insufficient for the task. They thought, how do we forgive like this? How do we, how do we live like this? How do we exhibit this kind of patience? So, so here's how they responded in verse 5. After Jesus says, you know, if they sin seven times a day and repent, forgive them seven times a day. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he think that servant Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you've done all those things you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what uh, what was our duty to do. When the disciples hear Jesus paint this picture of, you know, offenses are going to come. Don't go out of your way to cause offenses. But when offenses happen and your brother sins against you, seek restoration and seek forgiveness, even up to seven times a day. And, and seven, of course, is just symbolic. If it happens eight times a day, I'm pretty sure we're expected to forgive the eighth time as well. But uh, when the disciples hear that, they think, we can't do that. I, I, I don't know how to do that. We're incapable of this. They believe that this will require more faith than they think they have. So they cry out, Lord, increase our faith. Give us, give us more faith. But Jesus responds quickly. He says, it's not more faith that you need. It's not great faith that you need. It's faith in a great God. 
that you require. Your faith is sufficient. Jesus says even faith as small as a mustard seed could uproot a mulberry tree and throw it into the sea. What, what, what's up with this mulberry tree? Why does he re- reference that? There was a saying going around uh, in the first century, and rabbis would repeat this, that the roots of a mulberry tree would stay in the ground for 600 years. Evidently, a mulberry tree, when it grows down, it has such a gnarly, tangled-up mess of roots that goes so deep and so wide that to get it out, to uproot a mulberry tree was just about impossible. And so Jesus says, a faith as as small as a mustard seed could uproot a mulberry tree. Now, Jesus isn't saying... You know what I really want you praying about is to uproot trees. That's what this kingdom is all about. We're just, we're just on this big project to deforest the earth and especially mulberry trees. And uh, that's what we want. And we also, we want them all to go into the sea. That's what we're after. That's not, that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, nothing is impossible for me. And my mighty acts don't depend upon the, the greatness or the perfection of your faith. My mighty acts don't, re- don't require you to be these super uh, charged gurus that, that, that know everything and, and, and are, have, have achieved perfection. No. My mighty acts respond to the genuineness of your faith, even the childlike simplicity of your faith. Furthermore, and Jesus adds to this, he says, your faith is not some coin that you pay me to get me to do what you want me to do. And so Jesus seems to be reading into their question. At first, on on first glance, that looks like a really genuine request. Lord, increase our faith. That sounds like something we ought to pray. But Jesus is reading into that and he's thinking, well, maybe they think if they have more faith and if they are these, you know, supercharged gurus of the faith who've reached perfection, then I owe them something. I owe them a certain kind of peace or a certain kind of community that is free from offense. So Jesus says, your faith is not something you pay me to get me to do what you want me to do. And and he adds a little parable. Jesus says, a servant goes out to work all day long. He does exactly what's required of him to do. When he finishes his day and he comes in from his work, does his master throw him a party? Does his master bake him a cake and say, oh, I'm so thankful that you did exactly what I told you to do today? Uh, Or does the master expect him to do the other things that he is required to do? No, that's, that's exactly what happens. The servant goes on to do the other things required of him. The point is the master is never enslaved to the servant when the servant does what he's required to do. So what Jesus is saying, we never put God in our debt. We're never in a position to say, Lord, look at all I've done for you this week. Look how righteous and, and, and perfected all of my acts and thoughts were. Now you owe me this thing that I'm praying for. You owe me this thing that I'm asking for. Look at my great faith. You owe me this thing that I'm praying for. And if if he doesn't give it to us, then we, then we get all sideways and we get upset. We never put God in our debt. Our, our obedience is never leverage to obligate him, and he is never required to reward us. Our faithfulness to obey him comes out of gratitude. It's not a transaction between equals. It's not like we, we're, we're operating in the sense that, look at all this greatness, and God, I know you're great, but I'm great, and let's, let's work this thing out. Let's negotiate. That's not it at all. Of course, what Jesus is getting after, building on these last couple of weeks as we've seen what he's building to in 
in Luke's gospel, we are like the prodigal son. We put ourselves in the position of servants who deserve nothing. We put ourselves in the position of those who, who are just thankful to be alive. We put ourselves in the position of servants and he, like the father in the prodigal son parable, he lifts us up to the position of sons. We act like servants. He puts us in the position of sons. We take the lower seat. He invites us up to the higher seat. Just as uh, John uh, 15, or Jesus in John 15 says, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. In Galatians 4, he says that, that God has redeemed those who are born under bondage under the law to receive adoption as sons. So you start out like a servant and you become a son. But if you're like the Pharisees who assert their sonship, even from the fires of hell, as, as we saw in the parable last week, uh, the, the rich man asserting his sonship, if you assume the higher seat, you will be brought low and it will be quite embarrassing. Now, all of this, all of this information here is an answer to the disciples' request, increase our faith. Jesus is describing the quality of the faith that's required. Again, not the quantity of faith, as if you could pump up your own belief somehow. But the, but the kind of faith that comes from a place of humble gratitude, that will lead to the kind of interconnected community kingdom life that Jesus wants. And as if to illustrate this very kind of humble faith, Jesus works a miracle. So everybody can see what kind of faith he's talking about. In fact, in the rest of this chapter, there is a miracle and there's a prophecy that come back to back that show us if you're going to come together into the kingdom the way that Jesus requires of us, if you're going to come together in the church the way he's told us to, you're going to have to leave the old world. You're going to have to leave the old age and, and, and leave those things behind. So to come together, there's always a separation. And Jesus repeatedly in the next chapter, he's going to talk about this as well. He's going to say nobody has left mother, mother or father or lands or, or anything that shall not receive more in my kingdom and, and receive reward uh, for, for that and have those things replaced. So, but there's this separation before this coming together. And we're going to see that in both the miracle and in the, uh, and in the prophecy that Jesus uh, gives us. So let's pick up with verse 11. <clears throat> now it happened as he went through Jerusalem, as he went to Jerusalem, <coughs> that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Remember again, we're on this journey to Jerusalem with Jesus through Luke's gospel. We're headed from his home territory of Galilee down to Jerusalem. And the way this study is going, if we keep up this pace, as my goal is, we're going to get to the cross the week of Good Friday and we're going to get to the empty tomb on Easter. 
so that's why I'm trying to squeeze so much, so much in here is we're, we're on a mission just as Jesus is on a mission to get to Jerusalem. Um, and, and he has an appointment there. there. So there's this intensity to everything that Jesus is doing. And now as he's traveling, he passes through a village, an unnamed village, where there are 10 men, lepers, who stood afar off and they crowd to him, Lord, Master, have mercy on us. What, what in the world is leprosy? Leprosy is caused by a bacteria. It is a horrific disease. It is, it is like a living death. Um, this bacteria attacks the skin and the nerves. It disfigures the face. It disfigures the body. You lose fingers and toes to injury because it deadens your nerves. You don't feel when you get hurt. You don't, you don't feel it when, when you injure yourself. And so the body also it loses its ability to heal itself. Of, of all the diseases of the ancient world, the poor people who were affected by, by this, uh, leprosy made people the, the most outcast of the outcasts. You couldn't be further outcast than to be a leper. And, and because you could catch it by continual contact with the infected person, God's law required those who had this disease to be separated from the community, to be separated from the rest of the people. There's two chapters in Leviticus 13 and 14 that deal with how the priest could determine whether somebody had leprosy and then how you get it checked out and then, and then how you're to separate if you have it. You have to leave town. You can't be around the temple or the synagogue or the festival life of of the people of God. You are alienated from your family. You can't do your job. It's, it's just terrible in every conceivable uh, dimension. Leprosy is an awful disease. And so these 10 men who are afflicted with leprosy call out to Jesus as he enters the town. They say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They didn't say, heal us. I think that's interesting. They just ask for mercy. Maybe they've heard of all that Jesus has done and they reach out with the hope that somehow he might be able to alleviate their suffering just a little bit because, because uh, leprosy is just a death sentence. You're just going to continue to fall apart until you die. There's, there's no way that this can be healed. And so maybe they think maybe just asking for healing is too much. Again, this little mustard seed of faith. They're just reaching out with some hope that there's some chance that he could do something for them. Could he possibly help us? Is there any way that he could deliver us? So they're demonstrating this humble uh, faith that he just talked about with no presumptions. They're not coming to him saying, you owe us this. There's, there's no cure for them. There's no solution, nothing to look forward to. But here's this one chance we have for mercy. And Jesus' response is fascinating. They didn't say, heal us. And Jesus didn't say, you are healed. He, he didn't say, you are cleansed. What does Jesus say? He says, you go your, show yourselves to the priest. Go to the priest. Why did he do that? Well, first of all, it's the priest who makes the call of whether someone is clean or unclean. So if they're going to be healed, it's the priest who's going to give them a clean bill of health and allow them to return to life. Second, what an incredible sign this would be to the priests no one is ever healed of leprosy, and yet the priests are not going to be able to deny that these former lepers are healed. They're going to be forced to confirm the power of Jesus. And third, 
No one can say that Jesus is undermining God's law or undermining the priesthood because Jesus is obeying the law. He's, he's following the prescription from Leviticus. So Jesus says to these men, go show yourselves to the priest. And the men turn on their heels and they start walking toward the priest where he is, where they can show themselves to the priest. They obey Jesus and on their way, they're cleansed of the disease. What is the happiest news you've ever received in your life? Think back to the time where you got this incredible deliverance or this incredible advancement or promotion or, or you got uh, the, the job you had been praying for, you got the appointment or the opportunity, the most unbelievable, wonderful turn of events in your life. Imagine that and multiply it by about a thousand. Can you imagine having this death sentence of leprosy? And then as you're on your way to show yourself to the priest, it's taken completely away, 100%. Now you get back to go back home to your family. You get to go back to your life, to your friends. People will look at you in the eye. People will talk to you. Children won't cry at the sight of you. We, we don't know ultimately how nine of them responded. We only know how one responded. One man ran back to Jesus shouting and praising God. He fell down on his face and he gave Jesus thanks. This is the posture of faith that Jesus just described, demanding nothing, completely full of gratitude. And then at the very end, we find out that this man was a Samaritan. Um, he, he says, uh, this, and he was a Samaritan, this little understated uh, uh, point at the end. So the fact that this man was a Samaritan leper made him an outcast of the outcasts of the outcasts. You couldn't be any worse, I imagine, than a Samaritan leper. Samaritans had their own places of worship. They had their own religion. They didn't go to Jerusalem, remember. And this Samaritan forsakes all of that, and he embraces Jesus. The other nine lepers wanted Jesus' healing. They wanted his blessing and his miracles. But this man acknowledged him as master and Lord. And Jesus says to him, arise, which is resurrection language. This man is more than being healed. His soul is being saved. Jesus says, arise, your faith has made you well, this is an illustration of the exact kind of faith that Jesus was talking about. <laughs> it's also funny that we just read parables about one out of a hundred sheep being found, one out of ten coins being lost and found, one out of two sons being lost but returning. Here we've got uh, one out of ten lepers who come back. One, one comes back. With the other nine, we don't know what happens to them. But the one, the one is found. This lost one comes back and finds Jesus. Uh, sometimes the coin finds you, I guess. Sometimes the, shepherd come, the, the sheep comes back to the shepherd. But that's exactly what happens. In order to be fully healed in body and soul, this man had to separate, come, come away from not only the other lepers, but to come away from his Samaritan identity to fall down at the feet of Jesus and join this new community of life. It requires for not only this man, but for all of us, a hard and fast break from the old world, the old life, the old relationships of the old world. And the need for this separation becomes even more urgent as you head into this time of judgment that's coming. And I'm just going to quickly read the rest of this chapter and make just one or two uh, uh, comments on this. Verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. 
Then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning flashes out of one part under heaven, it shines to the other part under heaven. So also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed." In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Um, every, every resource and commentary I read on this chapter had, had a really hard time synthesizing all of these various things. You see, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a, a where, where's one theme? And I, I keep coming to this fact of, of, of separating with, with coming judgment, separating from this world that is dying and coming together into the kingdom that Jesus is forming around himself. So these Pharisees are confused about all this and they ask, what is the timing of this kingdom of God? When, when is this kingdom coming? And Jesus says, it's already here among you. You don't have to wait for it. I'm the king and I'm, I'm here. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, look, I know you want to know about some of the timing here, some of the signs of my vindication and the the judgment of this age, how this is all going to come together. He compares the coming judgment to the days of Noah and the days of Lot, when people were just going about their business, completely unaware that the world was changing around them. And everything they idolized, everything they loved, everything they held on to and depended upon was about to be destroyed. And so Jesus talks about what people were doing in Noah's day and in Lot's day. And it's curious, he doesn't talk about the sinful things they were doing. He doesn't talk about the wicked or perverted things they were doing. What does he say? He could have listed any number of wicked things, but he says in Noah's day, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. What's wrong with that? In Lot's day, what was going on? Oh, well, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built all normal things. Well, that's exactly the point. They're going about their lives completely oblivious to the great calamity that's about to fall on their heads. They're totally unprepared because they're entirely self-absorbed. And that's the position that Israel is in when Jesus delivers his verdict, his, his final judgment on them. Just as Jesus told the Pharisees, the kingdom's right here, right now among you. I'm the king, but they don't get it. They're asleep at the wheel. So Jesus instructs his disciples, you pay attention. And when the Roman legions arrive to Jerusalem, get out of town and run. Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't think that you can stop and collect your belongings. Normal life will be going on at one minute and the next moment there'll be panic. Some people will be asleep, others will be at work and the invaders will come and snatch one here and one there. There won't be any doubt what's happening. The disciples say, 
Well, where, Lord? Where are they going to be snatched away to? Where will they be? Not, not to heaven. This is not a rescue. This is talking about judgment. Uh, this, this is judgment on Israel and the old world. So Jesus answers cryptically. He says, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. The eagle is always a prominent image of the standard of the Roman legions. All the Roman legions had an image of an eagle on their, on their standards and on their, uh, uh, on their devices. And so, though eagles are not normally scavengers, the image that Jesus gives here is that the Roman eagles are going to pick over the carcass of Jerusalem. Okay, so, so what's going on in this chapter? The section begins with a shocking statement about being dragged down to the bottom of the sea with a millstone around your neck. That's how it starts. And then Jesus escalates it from there with references to the flood and to Sodom and the coming judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus' mission is intensifying, to say the least. And so how you escape judgment, how you escape this calamity that's coming upon the old world system, well, what do you do? You cut ties where you must cut ties. You hold your affections for the world and its trappings. You hold these affections very loosely. Be ready to walk away because the kingdom is breaking into this reality and you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? We, we hear that all the time. You know, we got we to gotta go this way because we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We talked about this Sunday night in our, our men's forum. Well, as if we're the ones in danger of being on the wrong side of history, right? As if, as if we're the ones who are going to be left out in the cold and shut out. No, the ones on the right side of history, the ones in union with Jesus and his people, those are on the right side of history. We're not the ones in danger. And, and so Jesus is saying, be prepared for this. Draw together as my people separate from the world that is dying. Finishing up with what Jesus said in verse 21, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. And by saying that, he's not saying that the kingdom is private. He's not saying it's unseen or that the kingdom of God is in your heart. What he says is, is that, uh, the, another way of translating it is, this is that the kingdom of God is so close to you. It's right under your nose. It's within your reach. He, he doesn't just tell us where the kingdom is, but that you have to do something with it. It's in your face. It's presenting you a decision to make, to believe, to trust, to follow Jesus. The leaven of the kingdom is working through everything. And it's here waiting for you to engage it, to sign up, to get involved in it. Get into the lives of the people of the kingdom. Don't hold them at arm's length. Weave, weave your lives together. Initiate, invite, embrace the life that Jesus describes of mutual forbearance and forgiveness and direction. Don't live the oblivious lives of the people that, that were judged in Sodom, the people who were judged by the flood, the people who were judged in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Don't live that oblivious life uh, completely unaware of what's going on around you because judgment is going to break in and you're not going to be ready for it. Jump in, be an active, vital part of the kingdom because you cannot live on your own. But Jesus says it's impossible that offenses, uh, that no offenses should come. And most people hear that and they say, well, yeah, there's that old saying, right? Hell is other people. You've heard that, right? Hell is other people. That's exactly backwards. Hell is the absence, not the presence of other people. In fact, in hell, the wicked are utterly alone. The, the wicked are apart from personal, uh, close relationships with the God that they despise and his people. We go to heaven 
in covenant, but we go to hell alone. Don't, don't spin apart. Don't be flung apart. Close ranks, come together and be part of this kingdom that Jesus is building around himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and insofar as I have tried to rightly understand it today, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take whatever is of worth that I've said and continue to work it into our lives, again, by your Holy Spirit. And if anything is not helpful, help us to forget it, but to cling fast to what is true and what is right and what is good. So, Father, strengthen us again by your word, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.